Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And now it's time for me to welcome back our resident energy expert, Robert Rapier. Robert, let me introduce you to anyone who's new to the show. You are a chemical engineer in the energy industry. You have over 25 years of international engineering experience in the areas of chemicals, oil, gas, renewable energy industry. You hold several patents for your related work, and you've also worked in areas of oil refining, oil production, synthetic fuels, biomass to energy, and alcohol production. You are also an author of Utility Forecaster for Investing Daily, as well as you wrote a book, Power Plays, Energy Options in the Age of Peak Oil, which is what we're going to talk about today, as well as you have appeared on 60 Minutes, the History Channel, CNBC, Business News Network, CBC, PBS, and you also have appeared in numerous media outlets to include Forbes as a senior contributor, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, and The Economist, as well as being an occasional fill-in for me as host of In the Oil Patch radio show. So welcome back to The Oil Patch. Thank you. I love having you on because you really have a very diverse way of how you look at energy. And it and it and it's the range is rather it's rather we're talking about is big oil and natural gas bad or good to the political arena of which um, you're willing to call out which president is doing well and which president isn't, who are the bad guys and who are the good guys when we look at energy as a whole. And so some of your articles that you release in Forbes, I like to cover them because they're really good articles. You, you have a wide range of how you look at energy. I typically tend to line up being more supportive of oil and gas, trying to understand it more as an outsider. You are the insider, and so you look at all forms of energy. So I want to talk about a few of your articles today. First of all, you recently uh, on Halloween wrote an article. It was titled Hertz. We all know Hertz, which is the uh, what they rent vehicles. I just rented a Hertz vehicle over the weekend. So yeah, Hertz vehicles. Yes. Well, Hertz, your article says Hertz hurt by electric vehicle challenges. And you wrote um, that you believe that the future belongs to the renewable energy and electric vehicles, but they are in for a transition. And this transition is going to be a bumpy ride. So they might want to buckle up. You've been saying this for years. My question though is, over the past couple of months, I've interviewed quite a few uh, other uh, experts, and they've talked about really the problem that the EVs have had, the manufacturers, Ford and stuff, that they're losing money like crazy. And thank God that the Inflation Reduction Act gave them money, but they're losing money on EVs. And we know that they have a hard time creating these batteries. We we don't have enough charging stations to really put them out mainstream. So, so when you talk about the bumpy ride that they're in store for, tell us a little bit about what you mean. Okay. So interestingly, I did an interview earlier today and the guy owns an electric vehicle and he said, um, he said, I went to charge my vehicle the other day and he said, I had to wait in line 25 minutes to get to a charger and then it took 30 minutes to charge my vehicle 
And he said, I don't know how many people are going to wait 50 minutes to, to, I mean, when you could fill up in five minutes. And I said, you know, I've been saying something like this for a long time. There's several challenges here. Um, one is the cost of electric vehicles is still very high uh, relative to internal combustion engines. And two, people still do have range anxiety and, and charge anxiety like this guy had. Um, and another thing I said, that, you know, a lot of people don't realize how much it's going to cost when they uh, deplete their batteries. I mean, it's going to be a massive cost that would make replacing an engine, uh, you know, look like look like changing a tire. I mean, it, it's replacing batteries on an electric vehicle is is a significant expense compared to the overall cost of the vehicle. And so um, I gave a talk in Utah about oh, 2015, I guess. And and I was asked, you know, how long is it going to be before our parking lot's full of electric vehicles? And I said, you know, when I walked through the parking lot, it was full of four wheel drives and they're caked with mud. And um, I said, I can't see electric vehicles. I mean, I, there's nothing on the horizon that will replace what you have in the parking lot right now. And that was also about the time that uh, Bloomberg put out an article that said uh, by 2022, oil will be in a permanent decline because of the impact of electric vehicles. And I poked them a lot over that article. I said, they make some very bad assumptions there. I said, there's no way. I said, I guarantee you, we will not be at peak demand at 2022 because of electric vehicles. And and so, you know, the, that, that's the problem really is just, you know, people. It's, it's not convenient enough and it's not cheap enough for people yet. And uh, as you say, so you are know, people buying the hype? Do you think that people are buying the hype? Like Blizzard there's, a, there's a lot of early adopters. There's a lot of early adopters for, for anything. I mean, a lot of early adopters, but you get past those early adopters and then you get people who, OK, they're in special situations. I, you know, I commute five miles to work every day and I've got a home charger and therefore, you know, electric vehicle might make more sense for me. Um but then when you get people who, you know, we drive a lot in the U.S. and uh, a lot compared to other countries, and it makes it very difficult and challenging for us to, uh, you know, to broadly adopt electric vehicles. Where, where the population density is very high, it may be feasible. But I, one thing I've said for years is if you want to see where things are headed, look at Norway. Norway has the fastest adoption of electric vehicles. They've had the highest growth rate for many years. They have the highest penetration and it took a long time before their gasoline demand started to, to started to go down. And their oil demand is still about where it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. It might have come down just a little bit. But uh, all these people thinking that we're going to, you know, see a rapid decline in our oil demand because of electric vehicles. There's no you can't point to any example and say, yeah, just like them, because if you look at Norway, you say we are way, way behind Norway. And even they are not seeing a huge drop. Um, they've seen a drop in gasoline and they've seen an increase in diesel. So their overall oil demand, it hasn't been impacted by a whole lot with all this uptake of electric vehicles. And on the path we're on right now, we're probably, you know, 20 or 30 years behind Norway uh, as far as the number, get, getting the number of electric vehicles out that they've got on the road. Right. Well, you know, Robert, in your article, you clearly, here's your argument of, you know, why this is not quite making sense. And, and I want to be clear, I am not saying I'm against electric vehicles. If, if we can fit them in, if they make sense, and if they are economical for the average person to drive, I'm all in. But Hertz, in your article, you say aggressively moved to incorporate EVs into its fleet. In 2021, Hertz announced that they were going to replace 100,000 electric vehicles from Tesla into service by the end of 2022. Those plans have slowed. 
They have about 50,000 now as of the third quarter 2023, which comprises of about 11% of Hertz total fleet with Tesla making up about 80% of those vehicles. Now let's talk about what's happened since then. Since then, it's been so, slow. Go, yeah, tell us because these numbers yeah, are- I was gonna say, they just had an earnings uh, report and in the earnings call, they said, number one, they've had to mark down their value of the vehicles that they've got because uh, Tesla is not selling vehicles as fast as they were. And so they're having to cut prices. That was number one. The second one caught people really off guard. They said repair costs for the electric vehicles were much, much higher than for internal combustion engines. And that really caught people by surprise. They, they weren't expecting that. And so as a result, Hertz said, you know, we're going to tap the brakes here a little on the electric vehicles. They said, we're still going to continue to grow. Um, but I think it was a little bit of a wake up call that, uh, you know, this is not going to be just as smooth sailing as people thought. Right. And and then also it's it's twice as high compared to gasoline vehicles. So let's add in that right now everything is higher because of where we are right now with Bidenomics, if you will. Um, and it's just this is the price of doing business, but it's really um, a, a pretty high price to pay. And when we did, I did a, a show the other day, we were talking about how much money Ford is losing off of their electric vehicle fleet. And I think that the number, if I remember correctly, was somewhere around $30,000 a vehicle. I don't know how any company stays in business when you're losing $30,000 a vehicle, but that is where the Inflation Reduction Act is kind of coming right. in and leveraging it for them. My point is, I'd like for you to just kind of tell our listeners, like, you are not against this, but this is that bumpy ride you were talking about that maybe we're just not quite ready to go to electric vehicles. There's still a lot of challenges that lie ahead of this market, right? So, so I would tell people, look, I, I wish we didn't have to use oil. I wish we didn't have to drill for oil and, and burn it and send all the pollutants into the atmosphere and, and all the things that go along with that. The reality is we our economy is runs on oil. So if you say, you know, I hate using oil, but you use oil every day. I mean, it, the, the reality is we need oil. And um, this is the risk. I've always said the, the risk of, uh, you know, trying to force a transition and then enforcing that transition think, OK, we're going to be at a certain place 10 years from now. And therefore, we don't need the Keystone Pipeline. We don't need offshore drilling. We don't need all these things. And then 10 years comes along and you go, wow, we didn't get to where we thought we were going to be. And now we didn't do all these projects that could have supplied us. And now Saudi Arabia, can you give us some more oil? Venezuela, can you give us more oil? Uh, sure. At $200 a barrel, we have that oil for you that we could have had. Um, you know, that's the thing, you know, the, the Keystone Pipeline just drove me crazy. You've got a private company out there wanting to build a pipeline and pay workers and use materials and, and create jobs and not take anything from the government and the government, you know, Biden comes in and he says no. Now, and, and a lot of people said no, because we won't need it. Well, if you don't need it, so what? That's that's that would have been TransCanada at the time. That would have been their problem. They were taking a risk. And if demand fell because all these renewable energy uh, projections came true, then, OK, TransCanada lost money. And the U.S. still employed people and people still made money and bought vehicles and bought houses and did all the things economically because that pipeline went in. And if it's not needed, OK. But if it is needed, then instead of going to get that oil from Venezuela, it's coming from Canada. 
exactly. You're exactly and some right. from think... the and some from the Bakken. I mean, that was going to take some oil. There was going to be some oil takeaway from the Bakken that right now is going by rail up into Canada and over to the East Coast. Well, well, we're going to get into the Biden administration a little bit later on in the show and what they're up to when we talk about regulations and stopping the path forward for oil and gas. But let's take a quick break. When we return, Robert, I want to talk about the World Energy Outlook 2023 and an article that you also had uh, released in Forbes. Uh, but we got to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry, Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, senior contributor for Forbes and regular energy expert on In the Old Patch Radio Show. Robert, before the break, we were discussing electric vehicles and, and their path forward. How long will it take? What are going to be the bumps that they will experience and all of us as we go along this route? But I want to switch gears and I want to talk about the World Energy Outlook Report. An article you you wrote for Forbes uh, discussed fossil fuels peak and renewable surges. In your article, you said perhaps the most noteworthy prediction of the report is of peak demand for fossil fuel within this decade. However, it is important to note that coal is the only fossil fuel projected to decline over the next decade under the IEA's stated policy scenario. And that global coal consumption is projected to decline by 13.5% by 2030. 30, but natural gas and good old oil consumption will both be projected to rise. Now, I know that we're also expecting a large population to continue to grow in the future. So I'm trying to figure out how we get off of any energy source, much less oil and gas. But I want you to explain to me in what ways was this report stating that we've hit peak oil and how are they going to lower oil, gas and coal? Yeah, so the, I saw a lot of the headlines that uh, spun um, that report as peak oil or, or peak energy, peak peak fossil energy, or so forth. And I actually had to get into the tables to see. Yeah, all they're they're projecting that uh, a lot of countries are going to transition away from coal, but you get into the numbers and you see oil's going up and natural gas is going up. I haven't seen any. I mean, I, I saw people, you know, say, "Well, the fossil fuel industry is dead." I mean, the oil industry is just fine. I mean, they they said the oil industry is going to continue to do well and grow, and so is natural gas. And uh, and frankly, China's where all the coal consumption, more than half the world's coal consumption is. So basically, they're predicting that China's going to phase off coal, which would be good if they did, because that's where the bulk mm -hmm. of the world's carbon carbon dioxide emissions come from is Chinese coal. Um but, you know, I thought the report really was a lot of people misled with the articles that they wrote and the headlines that they wrote because it leads you to believe and leads you to support things like, hey, we don't we, we're not going to need oil. We, we don't need oil now. We don't we don't need these projects. You know, we don't we don't need to drill. Um, and, and that's not what it's saying. Yeah, I was just thinking if the Bloomberg article had been right in 2015 and we had reacted to that and we said, OK, 
we don't need to drill for more oil because oil demand is going to go down. We've been way off. We'd had a huge shortfall right now, and we'd probably have oil at $200 a barrel. If we'd listened to that and said, okay, these guys are right, oil demand is, is going to fall off a cliff. I mean, they projected that oil demand between 2015 and 2022 was going to fall by 2 million barrels a day because of electric vehicles and be in a perpetual decline after that. It was going to be a fatal death spiral, I think it's they called it. And I said, nope, that's not going to happen. The, the numbers are not there. Well, you know, Robert, even in their own report, 1.5.1, I encourage our listeners to go look it up. It'll There'll be a link when we post this. It says, first statement, continued investment in fossil fuels is essential in all of our scenarios. It, it, we're not, name a country that is, uh, you know, energy poverty. Are they doing prosperous? No, they're not. You, you, you have to have this. And I think when we look and we see even here at back home that we have under investment going on and we are paying a higher price for it. So uh, it's a shame that we have media that puts out information that's just not accurate in, in any, it, well, it's just not accurate and is not good for putting this out there. Anything else in the report that you found to be, you know, something of worth? I, I was looking, I saw a lot of the clean energy information in here. And, you know, we are going to move it. We're moving into clean energy. But I just, like you said, I wish that they would support more. This will be a transition if this is going to be done in any way that is um, not um, horrific, if you will, to our pocketbooks, as well as to just the overall scenario that we just can't make this transition on flipping a switch. It has to be done in, in a manner that is just going to be a transition for it to be affordable to us. And you have to make sure you've got contingencies in place. I mean, the, the it won't be smooth. Uh, if you have projections, you have to have contingencies in place in case you have a massive shortfall of where you think you're going to be. If you thought half the fleet was going to be electric vehicles by 2035 and, you know, it's only 5%, you better be prepared for that contingency. Um, you know, if it was easy to be off of oil, there'd be countries that didn't run on oil. And every country in the world is dependent on oil. Every country. There's no country that's not dependent on oil. Well, you're right about that. My question would be is why why doesn't the media report that if we're going to do this, it has to be affordable. In the report, it also states that energy crisis squeezed budgets as prices soared in 2022. And that goes back to what you said earlier about you cannot overinvest, but you cannot underinvest. And we're not anywhere close to finding a solution in any way. That's just my opinion. Um, but I think that the report is a good report. I think that everybody should go and read it. It kind of talks about how this transition, how they see it, you know, rolling out. And also it shows the countries and the companies that are a part of this report as well. Um, Robert, when we get back from break, I want to switch gears again and talk about China. Because um, there was a report that came out, it was, uh, I believe, in um, oil price. It was talking about China to tighten regulations on oil, natural gas, and power monopolies. And I want to get your opinion on what that means. Does this mean that China is starting to take climate change more seriously? Are they willing to do things that they probably had not been willing to do before in the name of climate change? And how does this affect us uh, globally and are they heading on the right path in your opinion but let's take a quick break you're listening to in the oil patch radio show and we'll be right back
In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to texasmutual.com TXOGA. Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium plus you can earn double dividends that'll go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at TexasMutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. And you're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, senior Forbes contributor, along with being a resident energy expert for In the Old Patch Radio Show. Robert, I want to switch gears because we just finished talking about a report that came out from the IEA on their view of oil, gas, coal, and all of the transition that we're going through, what they see coming in the future. And a lot of that in the report had to deal with China. And China has really been somewhat of a player on the world stage of not really wanting to enter into negotiations when we talk about climate change. They continue to beat to their own drum, if you will, in the way of doing what they want to do, bringing on coal plants. They're one of the largest polluters of the planet. They are the largest carbon emitter on the planet. They're the largest. The largest. And they don't seem to really be wanting to take climate change serious the way we see other countries Uh, and nations wanting to try to find a solution. So I want to ask you about an article that came out recently in um, Oil Price. It's titled, China is to tighten regulation of oil, natural gas, and power monopolies. In the report, it kind of focuses on the fact that they are wanting to do this, but there's not a lot of what I see in the way of doing it for climate change It's more um, to address that they want to tighten control over their $61 trillion financial sector. So what do you think is leading the charge here with the Chinese to start looking at what they're uh, on how to tighten up regulations for oil, natural gas and power plays? And does it play at all in the name of climate change or is it just financial? So it's it's probably, you know, China has their own oil and natural gas reserves. And it probably, I mean, the article didn't have a lot of detail, but if I had to guess, China is, uh, you know, just like with precious metals, they're trying to say, hey, we're going to need these in the future. And it's probably, you know, around the the ability to export and, uh, um, you know, not not giving away, you know, what what they're going to need in the future. Um, and I don't think it's about climate change. I mean, if, if if uh, China wanted to get serious about climate change, they'd be shutting down coal plants because that's where the vast majority of their carbon emissions come from. You know, they, they consume more than half the world's coal 
And, and, you know, we talk about them being the world's largest emitter. It's because of their population and because they're trying to uh, upgrade their population and, and move, you know, people from poverty in the middle class. And China's trying to balance that. You know, how do we do this without increasing our carbon emissions? And so they're doing everything. They're They're putting in renewables faster than any other country, but they're also, you know, digging for more coal and, and burning more oil and burning more natural gas. I mean, it's it's everything. And uh, and nuclear power, they're they're building a lot of nuclear plants. But, um, you know, realistically, they should probably be building a lot more nuclear plants and shutting down some of those coal plants. So, Robert, switching gears just a little bit, but staying on the topic of China. Earlier, we talked about the electric vehicles and the batteries um, that are going to be needed. And then in the report from the IEA, it did speak about how China was doing their part. But I noticed in that report, they were talking about how much they are selling solar. I was wondering if you know, in that report, are they listing China as selling and creating solar to like the United States to us? Or are they actually investing in solar projects themselves? And are they moving into the green spectrum themselves? Do you know if that oh, was China? China is putting on more renewable energy than anyone. Uh, they passed the U.S. We were, The U.S. was number one until, I don't know, 2018, 2019, somewhere like that. And China passed us. They're putting on renewable energy faster than anybody. They're putting on electric vehicles at one of the fastest paces in the world. They control the market on, yeah, they control the market on lithium batteries. I mean, the lithium batteries are going to Tesla's or, or, you know, they're coming from China mostly. Um, That's, you know, they, they control the market there, Uh, but it's not enough. You know, you got so many people there, they're having to do everything. So, um, you know, the renewables definitely won't be enough to run um, all, all the electric vehicles that they'd like to put out there. Well, at least they're getting involved and doing their part as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, I want to talk about crude price because it dipped so slightly. And I want to talk about why when we return from break. You're listening to an old Patriot show. We'll be right back. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us. 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three- and six-person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha source side-by-side owner study. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, senior Forbes contributor, as well as resident energy expert here for In the Old Patch Radio Show. Robert, let's talk about what's happening with crude pricing. Because um, there's some things that are happening when we look at the world and some 
things that are happening around the world that affect the price of crude, right? So the U.S. crude dipped below 80 for the first time since August. Right. And a lot of that is influenced by the weakening of Chinese exports and the potential de-escalation in Gaza. But that's also what escalates and changes things around, if you will, when we have Russia invading uh, Ukraine and things that, that, that are out of our hands here in the United States affect what's happening globally to oil demand, uh, OPEC, OPEC plus cuts. So the treasury yield has dipped slightly, uh, re- remaining significantly below last month's highs. So, so tell me what is going on here since we finally see the crude dipping down? Is it supposed to stay like this until the end of the year or, or is this just a little blip? It's going to go back up. What do you see? What lies ahead as we close out the year? So when the market's tight and there's not a lot of excess supply out there, any geopolitical events that that touch upon oil producing countries have an outsized impact on oil prices. Um, When when the war broke out in Israel, you know, the concern was that Iran would get involved and they're a major oil producer and that could have a major impact on the world, on the global oil supply. And um, since Iran hasn't gotten involved yet, I think the, the oil traders are calming down a little bit. At the same time, there's been economic data in the U.S. that's, you know, it's it's been mixed. There have been some good reports, but there's also some reports that things are slowing, that people aren't spending as much money. Um, there's been reports out of China that say the same thing. And that is causing concern. You know, I, I people people talk about oil being a function of supply and demand. I say it's it's not really that. It's a function of the short-term expectations about supply and demand. And so if you expect in the short term um a slowdown in spending, a slowdown in in production in China, then you might forecast a slowdown. And, and we're in off-demand season, you know, we're in we're in low driving season now. Um, summer is our high driving season and once uh, September hits, you, you your demand starts to go down a little bit. Um, now, for what lies ahead, I've said uh, before that my concern is that next year, China and Russia will decide, hey, you know, we'd rather have Trump back in the White House than Biden, and therefore we're going to bring on the pain for U.S. consumers. And with our strategic petroleum reserve depleted, they have the power to do that. And so, uh, you know, they may get together and say, hey, you know, we've, we've had enough of Biden. Uh, we'd rather work with Trump. Let's knock a couple million barrels a day off global supply and send oil prices shooting back up over $100. And that is the fastest way to get an incumbent politician voted out of office. And typically a politician, a, a president might respond by saying, OK, we'll see. We'll offset that by releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And we've already depleted that over the last year. Now, it could still go to zero. You could still take it all the way down to zero. But then you're really flying, you know, really, really without any insurance at all. Um, you know, it's like if, I always look at the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve like uh, homeowners insurance. You could get away without homeowners insurance until your house burns down. Um, you know, you, you're you're risking, you know, the risk is there. But if you take a risk, you better be prepared to pay the consequences. And I said when Biden started to deplete the SPR, if we had a major emergency where we needed it, it would look like the dumbest move, uh, energy move probably in the history of the United States. Uh, but he, he, he may get away with it, but we'll see. Next year, it may start to look stupid again because if oil prices shoot up because Saudi and, and Russia decided to cut production, 
And people are going, well, you know, we don't have the strategic petroleum reserve, you know, as a, as a big handle to try try to put more oil on the market. Because that was kind of stupid to use that. Um, you know, I, I don't view oil prices as an emergency, and that's when it has been used very frequently. We didn't lose supply. You know, when when Russia invaded Ukraine, we made a decision to stop importing Russian finished products. Um, it was mainly finished products that we were importing from Russia. So we didn't really lose oil supply. And then to say, you know, we're going to tap the strategic petroleum reserve to drive oil prices down. That wasn't an emergency in my view. It wasn't in mine either. I don't think any of the American people bought that. It was politicized. And now the announcement, speaking of the Biden administration, uh, they are going to probably, uh, this is probably on their radar, and they want to start putting it back in so that way they can get access to it if they need to it. So they have a round out for bids. So they plan on refilling it starting the new, or trying to refill it starting the new year. But I want to talk about with the Biden administration, the abrupt delay of major oil and gas lease sales that were mandated under the Inflation Reduction Act um, and the new regulations under the EPA to trigger litigation from uh, API, which is the American Petroleum Institute. Um, give me your spin on what's happening there. I mean, we've we've covered some stories here on the show about, you know, the administration not holding federal leases, not wanting to, pushing back. And now it looks like we're in a total halt, if you will. Yeah. This is so, this is another decision. This is another decision from the Biden administration uh aimed at making the left wing of his base happy. And um, you know, I, I, again, it goes back to I'm sure he sincerely believes that our demand is going to our demand is going to go down and we don't need that supply. I'm sure he sincerely believes that. And he's got people telling him that, you know, well, with the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to, you know, electrify everything. And, and you know, we're just not going to need that oil. And so um, we can pass policies that aren't helpful to the oil industry because, you know, we don't need the oil industry. And in reality, what's happening is, you know, if. if if things don't electrify as quickly as possible, and I, and I don't think they're going to, we'll get to a point where we either have that oil or we have to go out on the on the global market and get that oil. And, um, you know, that that's what happens with every one of these lease sale delays and, and cutting back the acreage and, and so forth. Um, that's the risk you're taking is that down the road, you just you have to go out and get it from countries that don't have the same environmental protections we do, that don't have the same concern for workers that we do. So, you know, oil that costs more in terms of lives and in terms of the environment than it, they would have had we got it right here in the U.S. Well, you know, I, I, the thing that I think I look at when I see the Biden administration is, you know, the constant attack on federal leases that affect others that affect states like Alaska that they are so dependent on federal leases most of their land versus Texas then you have the offshore leases as well I mean there's a constant just to stop as a whole the oil and gas industry from producing anything and that's not so much a problem for me, but I want to get your opinion on this. The problem is we talk about this underinvesting. And when you underinvest, we just cannot flip a switch and the oil or crude is there. It, it takes that, these that, projects that take years to develop. Let's okay. take a quick break because this is a little bit bigger with Mansion now as well. Uh, Chairman Mansion is upset too. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to an old Patriot Show. We'll be right back. 
Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry. Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. And we're back. You're listening to on the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, senior Ford's contributor, as well as regular resident energy expert here for in the Oil Patch Radio Show. Robert, before the break, I was just making a point that it seems very obvious to anyone that's looking that the Biden administration is trying to shut down oil and gas any way possible from the EPA putting out new rules that affect the offshore that is in litigation with API because of the rules that they tried to implement that was embedded into a force mandated in Inflation Reduction Act, if you will, as well as so we have problems with offshore. They're 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 boycotting that. They're they're stopping that. They're not allowing it. Also, there's also federal lands that they're not willing to hold any leases, issue permits, and it affects it affects states like Alaska. And now we have. Uh, Chairman um, Manchin, very, very upset, requesting to the point of almost demanding that President Biden adhere to what was in the Inflation Reduction Act. And I want to get your opinion on what's happening here with this administration. So here is the great irony. Um, And you, you just said before the break, you mentioned how these projects, you know, you, you can't just switch them on and switch them off. The great irony is, I just wrote an article for Forbes today. I published it today. In October, we set an all-time high record for oil production. Now, that that broke the record. In November 2019, we had produced 13 million barrels a day of oil that month. And I wasn't certain we'd break that record this year, but I felt fairly certain we would break the annual record this year. But in October, we produced 13.2 million barrels a day of oil. So where's the disconnect here? There there seems to be a disconnect. And what's going to happen next year is people are going to go after Biden on his energy policies, and he's going to say, scoreboard, baby. He's going to say, we just, I've, I've produced more oil than any president in history. And he's going to be correct. He is. He has presided over the most oil production in history now. At this point, um, he's going to he's going to say, "I'm I'm number one." The issue is, it takes a long time for these decisions to work their way through and to actually impact production on the ground. So, decisions right now to set aside acreage and to not allow drilling here and there, you're going to see that four to six years from now in the production numbers. And decisions that are happening now, that the production is happening now, that's based on decisions that was made, you know, years ago by oil companies. They made decisions years ago, and uh, that is reaping, we're seeing the rewards reaped right now. So I always say, you know, take what a president says about gas prices, about oil production with a grain of salt, because a president in his term has very little impact on that. and, and the classic case for me, again, is always President Obama. President Obama oversaw the largest expansion of oil and gas production in U.S. history. And he was, you know, just about outright hostile to the oil and gas industry. So why did that happen? It happened because of fracking 
and it happened despite him. And it happened because oil prices were very high. And the high oil price is the biggest driver. High oil prices are a bigger driver than any policies a president can go out and, and, and pass. But you know, I just anticipate next year that's what's going to happen is that uh, people are going to go after him about uh, you know these oil policies. And he's going to say, how can you say that? I, I, we're producing more oil than we ever produced before. And he's going to be able to say that. He's going to be able to say, in 2023, we produced more oil than we ever produced in the history of the United States. And the reality is, well, you could have probably produced more if not for some of these policies. Um, but a lot of this is, you know, it's price driven. We've had high prices for a while. The rig count has been steadily climbing since it bottomed out uh, during the stay at home orders in 2020. We've got a steadily increasing rig count and oil production has steadily increased from bottoming out then. So, uh, you know, pre presidents don't have a lot of direct impact on oil production and the impact they do have is longer term. In closing out the show, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what we're seeing um, in the way of mergers and acquisition. I recently had EY on the show. They recently released a report. It was discussing what was come, what was, you know, what was going to come to be, if you will. And in their report, they talked about <laughs> we will see a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And recently, within the last two weeks, we have uh, Kinder Morgan just announced that they purchased a natural gas pipeline, uh, Nextera, from Nextera Energy Partners in uh, uh, the Eagle Ford Shell, paying $1.2 billion for that asset. Energy Transfer purchased Crestwood for, I think, about $7 billion. Uh, that's midstream. Then there's also upstream, which is where I think we'll see the bulk of a lot of changes. But in that one, that area, we've seen ExxonMobil purchasing Pioneer Natural Resources and Chevron purchasing Hess. And I want to get your opinion on what do you think about these purchases and what do you think the future holds? Will we see a lot more of this in the first quarter of next year or will this go on all the way through 2024? How much turbulence is happening in upstream and midstream? So I, I did an analysis on BP after the Deepwater Horizon and the stock price fell. And I looked at BP's reserves and versus the value of the company. And I said, if you bought BP, you'd get their oil reserves for about eight or ten dollars a barrel. And then you'd get the rest of the company for free. You'd get all the refining assets, you get everything. And I thought it is a no-brainer for ExxonMobil to go out and buy BP if they could afford it and if the regulators would allow it, which they never would. They would never allow Exxon Large. to buy BP. But from, from that standpoint, oil companies are making those calculations all the time. And they're looking and saying, okay, it's going to cost us $20 a barrel to go out and find and drill and produce this oil. Uh, well, this company's got them on the books for half that. Um, you know, we can go drilling for oil on Wall Street easier than we can go and find it ourselves. And a lot of the best locations have been drilled. Uh, it's going to be increasingly harder to, to find good locations. And, um, and you know, Chevron and, and Exxon, they're sitting a lot of, on a lot of cash. Um, they've mm -hmm. done very well over the past couple of years with high oil prices. And, you know, they're just looking around and seeing, you know, where can we pick up some uh you know, some, yes. some barrels cheaper than we could go out and find them. And the next era energy partners is interesting because they are desperate for cash um, because they, they just cut their growth prospects. You know, that's they're a major renewable energy producer and high interest rates have just killed them. And they just cut by something like two thirds their growth projections 
and the 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 price of next era energy partners is down i think more than 50% in the last oh two or three months their 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 price plummeted whenever they slashed those growth projections and so i think a lot of those sales are, are just driven by you know trying trying to survive um you know getting rid of some of their legacy fossil fuel assets to keep the uh, re renewable projects going because that's the other thing you know we talked about the electric vehicles and the uptake and these projects in, in the renewable energy projects are capital intensive and high interest rates are just a killer for those projects, make them very difficult to do. And so there's been slowdowns across the board. You've seen a lot of solar companies uh, plunge by, you know, 70, 80 percent. Good companies yes. that had good cash flow before interest rates spiked up so much this year. Very interesting times that we are seeing in the energy industry and that's why we are here robert to cover it and answer the questions that uh, most of these media outlets won't ask or answer for the general public robert thank you for being a guest and i do look forward to you hosting some shows here between november and december that'll allow me to go on vacation so i'm excited to have you host in the oil patch radio show here in a couple of weeks sounds good in the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.